This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted and honored today to be joined by Chaplain Major General Stephen Shake, who is the Chief of Chaplains of the United States Air Force. He is the senior chaplain for more than 685,000 active duty, guard, reserve, and civilian forces, and leads a department of 2,000 chaplains. A native of Wisconsin, Chaplain Shake served four years as an integrated avionics component specialist before entering the active duty chaplaincy in 1988. He has received numerous decorations from the Navy and the Air Force, and it is such an honor to have you on The Rabbi's Husband with us today, Chaplain. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's an honor to be here. And uh, let me just say on the on the front end here is uh, advised by my my lawyers that everything that I say is not necessarily going to be copacetic with the thoughts and views of the United States Air Force and Department of Defense, but I'll do my best uh, anyway to represent uh, my uh, beloved organization fairly, but uh, most importantly, my God, as I uh, converse with you here today. Beautiful. Now, your chosen passage is uh, from the second book of Samuel, 9 through 11. So tell us um, what happens there. What character are we introduced to that almost certainly will not be familiar to most listeners? And why is this so important for you? So the story actually begins in Second Samuel chapter four, and and uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna murder this guy's name. I've already been rebuked by several rabbi friends of mine that I mispronounce his name, but I'm gonna call him Mephibosheth. And again, the rabbis listening will will uh, be quick to probably cower at my poor uh, command of the Hebrew language. But so we read in chapter four of Second Samuel of the demise of King Saul. And so the Philistines, uh, kind of a sneak attack, they, they run the castle and, and, um, and they kill the, the king, actually the former king at this point, King Saul, and also his son, Jonathan, who happened to be a really close friend of, of, of David. And so um, as is the custom and the tradition, quite frankly, when a, when a previous king is dethroned and in this case murdered, you want to make sure that there's absolutely no remnant of the new incoming king or any remnant, I'm sorry, of the former king, because you could potentially have some, some you know, squibbling about who it is that's really the king. And so the Philistines would have naturally wanted to go after any relatives of King Saul. And so word gets out that this little five-year-old boy who happens to be King Saul's grandson is still alive. And his, uh, his, his uh, babysitter hears about this and panics, and she grabs this five-year-old little boy, Mephibosheth, and she starts running. And in chapter four, it says that she tripped and fell with Mephibosheth in her arm, and when he fell, he broke both of his ankles and was crippled for the rest of his life. And so... Mephibosheth no longer was known of as the, the king or former king's son or, or grandson. He had a new name, and his name was the boy who is crippled in both feet. He wasn't known as a derivative of, of kingly heritage. He was known by everyone as the boy who was crippled, and he was known, quite frankly, for his deficiency and not his, uh, 
his rightly earned uh, heritage. And then when we uh, fast forward into chapter 9, we see something extraordinary happen here. And David, who's now the seated king of Israel, asks the question, is there anyone from Saul's family who's still alive? And now uh, a seated king would rightly want to know that because he'd want to make sure these people had absolutely no access to the throne and that they would be quelled and maybe even killed so that so that uh, there would be no threat to the to the seated king but david he says instead of doing what's expected of me and that is to get rid of anyone who is a potential threat to my kingdom i want to show kindness i want to show god's kindness to whoever remains so they go on a search, and they and and some guy by the name of uh, Ziba says, "Hey, I think I know where this this kid was living." And so Ziba goes out looking, and and uh, happens to know the family, and has some connections, and one thing leads to another, and and now poor Mephibosheth is drug into the king's quarters, thinking for sure he was going to be killed, he was going to be beheaded right on the spot as a potential threat to the kingdom. And David says in Second Samuel that his great desire was to welcome this uh, son of his dear friend Jonathan, the grandson of the now deceased Saul, to welcome him as as God would welcome him into his family. And so, so uh, Mephibosheth, instead of being an outcast, instead of being a kid who is has been known his entire life for his deficiencies, for his failures, for his deformities for his broken ankles for his being a crippled kid is now treated as one of the sons of of the king it's effectively a prince exactly he's a prince he's gone from a nothing to a prince that reminds me of the joseph story you know joseph's in a prison and then he's the viceroy of egypt in an instant exactly and and you know i i've been a chaplain for about 32 years and been doing this for a little while And it's amazing how many people I have come across in my years of ministry that have been dropped. Wow. You know, kids who were dropped by their coach uh, and didn't make the team. Wives who were dropped by their husbands uh, as they went out searching for a newer model. And quite frankly, all sorts of people who over their lives have have been dropped. And, and, And for them, that became a defining moment for them and almost their new signature it's a, a new identity. Oh, I'm the kid who didn't make the team. I'm that little girl who, whose father never accepted her as a full and capable human being, uh, a, a spouse, a wife who, who uh, was never good enough for her husband. Our world is full of this. And I think uh, COVID has, for me, has really kind of brought this back into focus again, because gosh, uh, I hear all the time people telling me what they don't have during this pandemic, you know, I can't do this, I can't do that, and I miss this, and I miss that, and I'm, I'm, I'm stranded here, and I'm stranded there, and and you know, when in fact, if we were to do an inventory, I, I bet, I mean, 999 out of a thousand things that are true about my life pre-COVID are still true today. I mean, the sun is coming up every morning, and so are your kids, and so is your wife, and, and, and my kids and wife, they they still love me, and 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 you know what the air I breathe is, is good and, and healthy and I have plenty of food. And, and even though we were a little scared there for a while, you know, we all have toilet paper and, and, you know, so the thing is 
there is so much that that has not changed and quite frankly so much to be thankful for even in the midst of this this difficult time i think um you know the the focus here is is got to be on what we're and what we can in fact be grateful for and what we can in fact remember as uh, ways in which we're blessed and so how sad it must have been for Mephibosheth to be to, to be that kid who was crippled all his life, the crippled kid. Later on in the story, as we get to Second Samuel chapter 9, we don't even see his name anymore. He's just referred to, not as Mephibosheth, but he's referred to as the kid uh, who has crippled feet. And this COVID pandemic has been renamed as the thing who has taken everything away from us, when in fact that simply is not true, especially for men and women of faith. And, and one of the fascinating things about this story, which I'm learning from you, is so he gets crippled because at age five, he's dropped and he breaks both ankles. And that's what cripples him. Yes. Which is astonishing and deeply resonant because I co-founded and chair African Mission Healthcare, which supports the work of Christian missionary doctors and hospitals in Africa in infrastructure, clinical care and training. And that is the experience of almost every kid in Africa who would be dropped. Yes. is you would break both ankles and then you would be crippled. Whereas if a kid is dropped in Washington, D.C. or New York or dropped, he falls off the place at whatever. It's happened to my kids. I mean, right. they go to the hospital. The kids are so resilient at that age. That's right. That's right. You know, literally four to five weeks later, it's like stunning. It's, you know, four to five weeks after the break, it's totally healed. Yeah. So what happened to him in modern understanding he should never have been crippled. He should have been four to five in modern day in the West, four to five weeks. He'd be totally fine. Yet this was a life defining event for him as it is for so many people in Africa today. And, and that just kind of illustrates the tragedy of so many people today who don't have access to the most basic medical care. Like, I mean, in, in, at least in his case, it wasn't invented yet. But in our case, it's been invented for hundreds of years and the cost is literally a few hundred dollars. And yet the surgical deficit in Africa alone is well over 60 million. Wow. Right. And it's the Christian missionaries who are, who are on the ground making a difference, providing the necessary care so that, that their children don't have to suffer the same fate as this biblical character who we're still studying thousands of years later. Exactly. But I think, Mark, that, you know, for me, the, the signature that so many of us allow ourselves to be, be defined by what we're not. We allow ourselves to be defined by our, our infirmities, by our, our failures, our shortcomings, when in fact that never, ever was God's intent. And that's the beauty of faith. That's the beauty of stories like Joseph and Mephibosheth and the ones that, that we, uh, we love to tell and retell. These are stories in which, which uh, the promises of God and the holdings of, of the Torah have allowed people to rise up from their earthly name. And, and own something that's quite frankly uh, heavenly, and in this case, uh, regal. Absolutely. And, and uh, it's such an interesting insight that so many people define themselves by their disappointments when in the Hebrew, there is no singular word for face. There's only panim, which is in the plural. And the reason is because none of us have only one face. Hmm. We're all complex. We're all children of God. We're all in the great image of God. And therefore, we're all complex. And therefore, there's no singular face that can come close to describing any of us. So therefore, Hebrews said, we're not going to have a word for it. If it doesn't exist, we're not going to have a word for it. We have plural. We all have many faces. Yes. You know, interesting, too, uh, studies at the University of Michigan and others have found that, that our brains have, 
have a way of capturing negative experiences and, and clinging to them with like a tenfold sense of, of rigor than, than positive experiences. And part of that was, quite frankly, our, our own kind of fight or flight. Of, it makes evolutionary sense. Yeah, it, it does. It does. So if you got a if you got a uh, saber tooth tiger running after you, you know, you better run. And, and and you better remember saber tooth tigers as a source of danger and have that at the front of your mind. Exactly. Exactly. And and you better because next time you go to pet them, you don't want to do that. That's right. And you better tell your kids the same thing. And so all this all kind of made sense until we evolved to a place where saber tooth tigers, quite frankly, are no longer a threat. You know, we go to zoos and look at them, and in fact, we hope we get to get close to one. And most of the times we're disappointed because it's in the cave sleeping or something. And, but uh, the fact is, is that, is that our brains have this way of kind of capturing and remembering negative experiences and holding them as, as defining kind of characteristics for us far better than our, than our positive ones. And, and I think it's important for persons of faith to, to remember that, that that's kind of our instinctive DNA. And our faith allows us to surmount that and, and move beyond that. And quite frankly, uh, listen to the words of, of God, who, of course, David kind of personifies in this, is that we have been welcomed to the table, God's table. We've been welcomed to be princes and princesses and, and allowed to eat with the king. And what a, what a good deal that is. So how do you, um, as, as a chaplain and as a leader of chaplains, how do you best counsel somebody who, because we're all... We all live in evolutionary time. We, as you said, we remember our disappointments, our setbacks, our dangers more than they deserve because it makes evolutionary sense, although not sense as we negotiate our world today. So how do you how do you minister to somebody who is focusing on their disappointments and on their setbacks to the point where they may be defining themselves by it? I think uh, one of the tools that that I have used, and I've, I use this myself personally. Is, is the tool of journaling. And again, science has shown that simply writing out um, even your, your negative concerns, your, your, your fears, your disappointments, putting pen to paper um, is, a, is a way of kind of organizing these thoughts for us. And when we see them in front of us, many times they tend to kind of uh, diminish in, in, in their effect on us. And the other practice that I encourage and I try to practice even myself is, is to be a regular and disciplined rememberer of those things that are well with me, the things that are good. You know, we count uh, or we, we talk about counting your blessings, even in the military context. If your life is, is kind of unraveled and, and, and COVID-19 has is, is kind of gotten the best of you or, or whatever your circumstance in life turns out to be, simply the practice of taking five, 10 minutes at the end of the day and writing out five things that went well for you today over the course of a month can retrace the way in which your brain processes inputs throughout the day. Marty Seligman at, uh, at, at University of Pennsylvania and other places, uh, other Experts in the in the area of positive psychology have have demonstrated and proven that that the simple activity discipline of writing out things that went well and it might just be something you know my car started today so I'm going to write that down and no that's profound absolutely you know my my eggs uh, weren't overly runny or or whatever and even these mundane things actually begin to reprogram your mind to be on the hunt for things 
during the day that really truly are blessings. I love that being in the hunt for, you know, the, the first thing that an observant Jew says in the morning is moda ani, which does not mean I am grateful. It means grateful am I. We acknowledge the existence of gratitude before we acknowledge that we're alive. And then throughout the day, there are literally a hundred blessings, exactly what you're saying. So there's a blessing when you go to the bathroom. And the blessing, I believe, is the places that should open are opening and the places that should close are closing, mm. which is absolutely incredible that our massively complex body works just as it should and just as we want it to and just as we tell it to. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And miracles are deserving of appreciation. And I think what, what you're teaching us is that if we appreciate things consciously and physically through the act of writing enough, we'll become grateful people and therefore we won't be defined by our disappointments. Absolutely. Fascinating. Now, um, you have an awesome responsibility in the sense that you're the senior pastor for 685,000 people, which is an astonishing number of people. How does it work in terms of your ministry and in terms of the, the chaplaincy when you have people of diverse faiths within the Air Force? Do they typically gravitate to the chaplains of their faith or can a chaplain of any faith minister to an airman of any faith? You know, if you had asked me this question about 30 years ago, I would have said the the former, you know, people can oh, gravitate to their own, their own flavor and the one that they're most accustomed to, or maybe were raised uh, in, but increasingly young people today are, are, are really agnostic when it comes to the brand of, uh, of theology, uh, you know, and, and certainly there are some, and, and maybe even more than a few who will still maintain some allegiance to the faith that they kind of were raised in and the one that they find personally, you know, the most uh, uh, valid. But gosh, my, my experience has been as young people today are just looking for authenticity. They're, they're just looking for someone who will be real with them. And whether that's uh, Muslim or, or Jew or, or Christian or Hindu, there's a search for authenticity and for authentic people that really quite begins then the validation process of, of whatever brand of religion that they, they tend to be most uh, connected to. And, and, and the other thing is uh, they're shopping and, and, and they know that their basket at the end of the day might be filled with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and they're really okay with that. Down at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, where, where more than 80% of our Air Force gets its start, our, our enlisted basic training we have about 20 different religious offerings every weekend. And these are, these are 20 distinct different religious offerings um, from which our couple thousand uh, airmen can choose you know, during their training to, to attend. And Mark, what, what really, really surprises me, but actually puts a smile on my face as well, is, that, is we'll have Southern Baptists going to Muslim prayer service. And I go, wait a minute, what, what's this all about? And they say, well, you know, I've I've always kind of wondered what they did. And so they'll, you know, we've got Baptists going to, to Yuma prayer and we'll, and we'll have, you know, we'll have Jews attending Christian service just to see, Hey, you know, I, I've never been to one of these before. And I, I'm just curious. And, 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 and that was not the case 20 and 30 years ago. No, no, not at all. And, and in fact, uh, you know, back in the uh, 60s, 1960, when, when the chapel at Lackland Air Force Base was built, it was simply built to accommodate two faith groups. It was built to accommodate Christians or, or, or Protestants, as you, as you, as you would, and um, and Catholics. And Jews weren't even part of the equation yet in, in the '60s when, when the chapel was built. In the uh, I believe it was uh, in the early '80s, uh, hired our first uh, 
Jewish rabbi in the military chaplaincy. It may have been a little before that. I don't remember exactly. And uh, of course, now we have Muslims and we have an, in the Air Force, we have one Buddhist. And quite frankly, I, just a week or so ago, I had uh, the great privilege of uh, commissioning our very first female imam. And so, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of the world, a lot of the Muslim world is not quite ready for a, a female imam, but we have one now in the Air Force, and I couldn't be more proud of her. She is an absolute delight to be in the presence of. And so this kind of religious diversity is, is I think, a, a healthy thing, although I would hope as I imagine you would too, that eventually we would, you know, our young people would find themselves grounded in, in, in a place that feels right and, and uh, leads them through the, the mysteries of life and in ways that have been informed by history and, and tradition and, and quite frankly, longstanding practices. So how does um, a young airman or woman decide they need to see a chaplain? Will there be, you know, you talked about how so many people are dropped and will, will they at some point come to the realization I was dropped or I feel dropped or I need some kind of guidance. And then what's the process for determining the chaplain with whom to speak? And do they build a relationship with that one chaplain or is it multiple chaplains they'll see over some time period? You know, it's, it's all of the above. You know, if in fact the, uh, the young airman who feels dropped, who feels in some way uh, disenfranchised and, and needing some, some guidance or, or maybe he's just going through the worst time of their life and they just have nowhere else to turn. You know, if in fact that uh, that young airman finds uh, a chaplain who he or she really believes to to be authentic and 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 real, and not so much out to um, sell them something as so much as to simply be present and walk alongside with, and when the the moment is appropriate and when the questions are asked, that the chaplain then begin and only then begin to you know offer some instruction. But, you know, again, authenticity and, and having a, a, an own, own personal sense of, of vulnerability and maybe even a hint of uncertainty, these are all attributes that our young people are really in search of right now. And they want, they want their teachers to have a little bit of this going on in them. And it's all about being authentic. Interesting. So will the word go out that this minister, this pastor, this imam, this rabbi is particularly authentic, is particularly good, and therefore someone who hits that point that you talk about the lowest point or just a low point or just a point where they need some help, they'll say, I've heard that Rabbi Pastor Imam so-and-so is the person I need to see. Yeah, absolutely. Some connect better with others. And so it's not a, it's not a dogma that, that across the board, you know, this chaplain connects better than others. Uh, maybe there may be a few cases where that's true, but, but a lot of it's personality. You know, religion is, is largely personality informed and, and driven. And and so, uh, so we, we pride ourselves in the Air Force chaplaincy to have a very diverse group of, uh, of, of clergy serving in the chaplain ranks. And at each base, we work really hard at, at providing a diversity amongst the, the four to 10 chaplains at any given base that, that we don't have six Southern Baptists there in, and or, or, or five rabbis. You know, we, we have a, as much of a mix as we can possibly put together so that our airmen have choices and they can in fact look around and and um and speak to to more than one if they want to but uh these are all very important uh, dimensions to the kind of the management if you will of the chaplain corps right well thank you for such a fascinating discussion about this biblical passage which i had never seen before and let alone realize how much profound resonance it has for all of us today now the um 
Concluding question, the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war, and this man had become a parish priest. So I said to this priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's great. It's great, great wisdom. And uh, so in all your years of being a chaplain in the Air Force since the 80s, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? The first thing that comes to mind is that human beings are extraordinary actors and actresses. And maybe along the lines of the, of the priest, um, what is seen on the outside is almost never what's going on on the inside. And even the most joyful among us are walking a hard road and are fighting demons and, and difficulties that likely will, will never be understood by, by others. And so, you know, everyone's work walking a hard road. Some of us do a better job of concealing that than others. But, um, but I'm absolutely convinced that even now more than ever, with suicide rates as high as they've ever been, the leading cause of persons in uniform today is suicide. And I do a deep dive on, on, on almost everyone in the Air Force, uh, the situations behind and around a suicide in the Air Force. And almost always, I've come to, to learn that these are people who came to work with a smile and, and had, a, had a sense of, uh, of peace ab about them. At least that's what they projected. Uh, most of the time, not all the time, but, but most of the time, and maybe more often than ever before, the closest friends even are surprised at this decision to end their life and, and quite frankly, provide a permanent solution to temporary problems. And, and, and I'm uh, uh, very troubled by that. But this whole act, the sense of, of, you know, we're all walking a hard road, a harder road than we're likely to, uh, to end up um, showing and demonstrating to others. And, you know, and the second thing, I guess, uh, that I would learn is that um, persons who, who give the great religions of the world a chance almost never come up, you know, wanting. Now, granted, you know, I, I'm a Presbyterian and I roll my eyes at stuff that, that I hear from my colleagues and my friends and, and other Presbyterians and, and Christians, for that matter. But, but, you know, uh, those who seek out the, the most genuine reflections of one of the world's great religions just simply don't come up wanting. There, there's such depth and, and such insight. And truth is, Mark, we all need a compass. And, you know, life is a, is a journey. And, man, we can find ourselves going around circles, getting absolutely nowhere in a hurry. And faith for me is, 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 is a compass. It's a, it's a direction. I love the word religion. Religion and the word ligament come from the very same root word. It is a, you know, a ligaments hold us together. They, they, they connect us. It comes from the same root? I didn't yes. And to, so to re-ligament is to religion. So religion reconnects us to where it is we're always meant to be from the first place. And persons who give that a chance uh, simply don't come up wanting. Wow. Well, what a profound statement of wisdom and what a profound concluding note for uh for the rabbi's husband so chaplain thank you for your wisdom and thank you for your service well thank you i don't know how to express my appreciation i'm sure listeners say the same thing so just just we're grateful
Thank you, Mark. It's been my honor uh, to be with you today. And please, uh, please thank also uh, uh, the rabbi. Uh, uh, Absolutely. To, to Absolutely. whom you refer. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we'd, we'd, we'd love to meet you in person someday. Absolutely. I love it. And, and just let us know when you come to Washington, D.C., be happy to host you. Oh, terrific. We absolutely will. Great. Well, thank you so much. What, a, what an amazing thing about religion. I have no idea. God bless, my friend. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.